I could say it's the last day of February, but normally it is February the 28th, this open mic Friday here on Law and Gospel, and I'm Tom Baker. But it's not the last day of February, because every four years, we have a February the 29th. I've always wished that I could have been born on February the 29th, because then when I was 20 years old, I was really only five years old. Because I only had five birthdays by then. But, unfortunately, I got born on another day. So, it's going to be interesting to see which children will be born on February the 29th tomorrow. This is Open Mic Friday. You can call me, Tom Baker, if you have any particular question of a theological nature. Uh, the number in St. Louis is simply 821 or in St. Louis or anywhere in North America. And you ought to put this on your refrigerator because you can phone other programs also that have the ability to talk to the individuals. 1-800-730-2727. That's 1-800-730-2727. Uh, yesterday, we were talking about an article in the latest Concordia Journal, the Winter 2020 edition. This is the journal from Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri, and has some excellent articles in it, not only from the president of the seminary, but also in remembrance of two individuals who have fallen asleep in Jesus, Victor Raj and Norman Nagel. But the article we were talking about was The Gospel-Centered Christian by Timothy Seleska. He is a professor at the seminary, and his areas of interest and expertise include Hebrew and the history of exegesis, particularly interested in the book of Psalms, namely, how do Christians read and meditate on them and the history of their interpretation in the church? What he does is something that I haven't seen done before in the way that he does it. We are all aware of a fact that many of the professors at Concordia Seminary St. Louis walked out in protest because they were said to be teaching doctrine that was not supposed to be taught in the Holy Seminary. And, in fact, the program just before mine, the coffee hour, uh, they were interviewing uh, President Meyer about the president who took over full-time, Karl Barth. I was a good friend of Karl Barth. We had many conversations he was a president of one of our districts in Wisconsin. And then he had done a number of things at the seminary, the most important being the building of the chapel. Uh, I, I, up to that time, when I was at that seminary, we would uh, worship in a kind of a hall and it was used for lectures and everything else. It wasn't anything specifically churchy about it, but uh, it was fine. 
and then this chapel was built. So Dr. Carl Barth has left this veil of tears and is in heaven, and so that was an appropriate item to talk about. But the reason he became president is that the president who had been president, Dr. John Teachin, had been uh, removed uh, by the Synod for his presidency and permitting false teaching to take place at Concordia Seminary. At that point, the interim president was Dr. Martin Charlemagne, a member of my congregation, and he did a real good job until the full-time president, Dr. Carl Barth, was called. But a lot of people don't really understand why the seminary faculty was removed by the Synod in convention at New Orleans in 1973. And the reason was, as Timothy Seleska points out, is they believed in what is referred to as gospelism or gospel reductionism. What that simply meant is that the most important thing in the Bible was the gospel. You see, I wouldn't disagree with that, because apart from the gospel, nobody can be saved. But we were taught that it was so important that anything up was up for grabs as to whether or not you believed it. And that became really evident when the faculty majority, and unfortunately it was a majority of professors there, there were only five faithful professors out of the 50 plus, they were interviewed and that was transcribed. And one professor said, for example, that God chose two monkeys called one Adam and one Eve. Uh, we were taught that, as I said yesterday, the Israelites went over the Red Sea on boats and the Egyptians, well, unfortunately, their chariots sunk in the mud. And every miracle had another option. It was kind of interesting when Jesus supposedly created wine out of water. It was that the servants were really his disciples who took out the water jugs, then filled them with wine and brought them back in. Uh, and, and every miracle was in that way put down as supernatural, but they tried to give a natural explanation. Now, I'm not saying that every prof believed all this, but they tolerated it to be taught because for them the gospel alone was most important in such a way that all the historical events were up for grabs. And that's why we ended up with a seminary in exile called Seminex that actually has now become part of the ELCA. And you know what's going on over there with uh, men, pastors getting married. Uh, lesbianism is perfectly okay. Abortion is okay. And they're, they're not that happy in doing evangelism because they, at their last convention, decided that we don't know all the ways that God saves a person. So we really can't say that someone who isn't an obvious Christian, like a Muslim or a Jew or Hindu, that they're not saved. And so they pretend that they are saved. 
And that's why you don't want to tell them about Jesus, because it would offend them. Well, Jesus said to his best friend, get thee behind me, Satan, when Peter offended Jesus by saying, no, no, you're not going to go die at Jerusalem. I will take care of you. Now, what Timothy Seleska does then is he also balances off gospel reductionism with what is referred to as biblicism or fundamentalism. This came about around early 1900s, and because there were so many modern views of the Bible, because of Darwinism, as well as what's called historical criticism, that would read the Bible like you read the daily newspaper and make up your own mind whether it was true or not, Christians began to unite by what they called the fundamentals of their faith. And part of the fundamentals of the faith were the inspiration and infallibility or inerrancy of the Scripture, the deity of Christ, Jesus' virgin birth and miracles, his death for our sins, and his physical resurrection and personal return. Those were the fundamentals. Now, what they did with those is that's how they taught confirmation, by trying to get individuals to believe, particularly, the truthfulness of the Bible. In my doctorate, I had examined over a 100 catechisms written by various people, and I came to the conclusion there were two kinds. The one kind followed Luther, started off with the commandments, then the creed, see, law, then gospel, then the Lord's Prayer, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. But many other catechisms started off by trying to prove to the student that the Bible had no errors in it. They wanted to prove the inspiration and infallibility of Scripture. Now, I believe the entire Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit and that it is inerrant in the sense that there are no errors in it. But that's not how I get someone to become a Christian. You get someone to become a Christian, as Jesus did on the road to Emmaus, by telling those two disciples all of the evidences from the Old Testament of why the Christ was to come and be crucified, rise from the dead, and ascend into heaven. This is really critical, and that's called the gospel. Nobody is saved by believing the history of the Bible. Look at all the Pharisees. They didn't deny any history of the Bible, but they denied the theology of the Bible that it all pointed to Christ who became Jesus from Nazareth, who was crucified by them. They had historic faith, believing the history, but they had no saving faith. And what's the difference? Saving faith is believing the promises connected 
to the history. So you can spend all the time you want in proving that Jesus rose from the dead. There was no proof necessary for the unbelieving Pharisees. They knew he rose from the dead in the same way that he raised Lazarus from the dead. The, the point was that they didn't believe the promises connected to those historical events that through Jesus, wow, we are saved. So, a fundamentalist believes that you need to prove that there are no errors or contradictions in the Bible. I, I don't think you can prove that because you only have the Bible as your place of evidence, your norm, that you find out, okay, what does God say about that? Uh, the, the only way that human beings try to prove something is by providing reason, that's logical arguments based on the best scientific, archaeological or historical evidence that solves the problems and therefore somehow takes care of the contradictions that unbelievers keep raising. No, I don't waste my time in trying to prove the historicity of the Bible. I appreciate archaeologists. They've discovered people's names from the Bible uh, in what they have discovered in archaeology. But I'm very careful of scientists because there's two kinds of science. There's observable science where you make a conclusion that water boils at 100 degrees centigrade or 212 degrees Fahrenheit because you're observing that. But then there's historical science. And how is that different? Well, first of all, historical science has no need for God. They believe everything occurred naturally. So we do know from observable science what it takes for a diamond to be formed. A diamond comes from a tree that, of course, dies, is fossilized, and under pressure in many, 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 many years, creates a diamond. That's how evolution ends up having billions of years uh, with the creation of the universe because naturally these things just don't occur. But I I'm always amazed that theologians forget about Jesus changing water into wine. Normally, that takes many years and a lot of energy for water to become wine through the grapes. Jesus did it in a few seconds. And if he can do that without using the lengthy time that science says it takes to create wine or make wine, why couldn't he have done it? when he created all things, according to John chapter 1. He said, let there be light. Guess what? There was light. Immediately. Let there be animals. There were animals. Let there be a human being. Adam was formed. 
followed by Eve. And all that was in six 24-hour days. Now, if you use historical science, you have to say, well, no, from a scientific point of view, it takes this long for something like that to develop. That's how you get your billions of years. But nobody observes that. And they forget that there is a creator who instantaneously created all these things. One of the best arguments I've heard against evolution, evolutionists believe that light from distant stars would have taken thousands of years to reach the Earth. If you see a star, light travels at 186,000 miles per second. But for some of those stars, they're so far away that guess what? It would take in a thousand years to reach the earth. But then if you read Genesis and realize that when God said, let there be light, immediately that light from those stars was reaching the earth. It didn't take thousands and thousands of years. So... When I was going to the SEM, the majority of professors there, they would take a miracle of Jesus and try and change it into a reasonable thing that was happening rather than what really happened. For example, we were taught one of the options when Jesus healed the man so-called with the demoniacs and the pigs ran over the cliff into the sea that he didn't have demons no, there were no such thing as demons. He was an epileptic, and he went into a seizure, and that scared the pigs. And that's why the swine ran down the mountain and drowned in the sea, even though they're some of the best swimmers in the farmyard. That's the options that we were being given. And we were always having arguments with the professors who taught these things. And so what has uh, Seleska done is really helped us to pinpoint these distinctions. It'll be interesting to see if there are any other profs, say at other schools, who would disagree with what he is saying. Because I believe what he is saying is really good, radical Lutheran theology. But some people don't like radical Lutheran theology. It's too radical for them. They, they want to instead decide for themselves what a text says. And no, one of the great principles of the Reformation is Scripture interprets Scripture. In other words, when I want to know what a passage means, I go to other clearer parts of the scripture that talks about that. For example, when Jesus tells the rich man who says, what must I do to enter into heaven? Oh, you have to sell all that your goods are, give to the poor, come follow me, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Now, that sounds like the way you get to heaven is by giving your money to the poor and loving them. And believe it or not, there are religions that actually think that's true. The way to offset your sins is by doing really good works uh, to pay for what you have done wrong. But 
in the context, letting Scripture interpret Scripture, when the rich man decides he's not going to do that and he leaves, what does Jesus say to the disciples? How difficult difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the actual Greek there really refers to Jesus saying how impossible it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples say, well, then who can be saved? Because they regarded rich people who were Jewish. They had money because God was blessing them with possessions because they were true believers. And they had sheep. They wore wonderful gowns. uh, They were the leaders of Judaism. So if they can't be saved, who then can be saved? And Jesus makes it clear. With men, this is Mark 10, by the way. With men, it is impossible. But not with God, for with God, all things are possible. And many other passages in the scripture show very clearly that the meaning of the rich man encounter by Jesus is that nobody can do anything in order to get into the kingdom of heaven. Works don't save. The only thing that brings you into the kingdom of heaven is faith and faith alone. And that faith means trusting the promises Of what? Of the gospel. Yeah, we still need the gospel because I believe that the Holy Spirit never converts anyone by using science or by using reason or evidence. He only converts people by the words of Jesus as found in Holy Scripture. Uh, Look at the Apostle Paul. There was no evidence given to him It was just the voice of Jesus. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And Paul came to faith. How could he come to faith? Because that's what the work of the Holy Spirit is. You cannot by your own reason or strength believe in the true God. But the Holy Spirit calls you by the gospel. So it just sounds strange But Christianity is totally different than every other religion. We are used by God to bring people into the church simply by repeating to them what Jesus has said to us from Genesis through Revelation. And we don't just leave it on a history level. We get into the law and gospel approach to every passage. So in regard to the rich man, the main point you would be making to your congregational members or if you're teaching your children, nobody can be saved by doing any good work. With man, it is impossible because you have an old Adam that always has a wrong motivation in doing the good work. So God doesn't look at your good works and say, ah, that's somebody that needs saving and then gives you faith. No. Faith comes and we have no idea why God brings faith to some people and others remain as unbelievers. 
That's the big question. Why some and not others? Now, there'll be an answer when we get to heaven. But while we're here on earth, that is the question. And it's almost the question of all doctrine. When people move away from pure doctrine, they often do it because they're trying to answer that question, why some are saved and not others. For example, evangelicals often say, you can be saved if you invite Christ into your heart. And we've said this a number of times. No, you can't. An unbeliever cannot invite Christ into their heart because they don't believe in Jesus Christ. They don't want him in their heart. And so it's amazing how the Holy Spirit works by a person hearing the Word of God or the Word of God being used as we do with infants who are being baptized. And in that baptism, they come to a wonderful understanding. That was actually a speech or conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus about getting back in his mother's womb, Nicodemus asked. We may be talking about that in the next Law and Gospel on Monday where we're taking a look at the second Sunday in Lent. God bless. Listen to Law and Gospel each weekday morning at 9.30 on KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law and Gospel, please make your check payable to Concordia Mission Society and mail it to Tom Baker, P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri 63132. To give online, visit lawandgospel101.com or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962. Views and opinions expressed on Worldwide KFUO may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. If you'd like to comment on programs or topics heard on Worldwide KFUO, write us at KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can also leave a question or comment on our comment line at 314-996-1542. We are the messenger of good news, Worldwide KFUO.